we are a week something in a series in Timothy. Uh, oh, that's not right. Uh, there we go. Uh, you, uh, we'll pick up today where we left off last week. You can go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. It's sec- or 1 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. That's where we're going to be. So you can open there and just hold there for just a moment. Uh, I had a chance to be home in Tennessee this week just for a couple of days. And um, man, it's just, it's centering for me. I'm a farm boy from Tennessee where they say things like, all y'all. And uh, man, it was good to be home. Uh, you know that, like a question, like a get to know you question, uh, we might ask this uh, in the new person lunch right after this service. Hey, what's your name? Where are you from? Like, what's your favorite movie? All those things. Mine's Hoosiers, by the way, or Gladiator. It's a tight. That's, those are my two favorite movies. Or like, what's your favorite food? Like, my answer is like, well, my mama's cooking. Whatever my mama cooks is my favorite food. So I got to eat my mama's cooking and be home for a couple days. So I, I drive up the, the driveway, the little farmhouse I grew up in, and it just it centers me. And um, anyway, off the driveway, there's this hill that goes down into the pasture uh, and then up to the barn. I should put a picture up, but I wasn't that prepared for that. But anyway... Uh, when I was a little kid, I used to get in a tire. My dad would push me down the hill in a tire. Those were good years. Good years. Come on, you are, y'all are so slow on the dad joke. Those were good years. Come on. How many of you missed that joke? So, true story, I did grow up a farm boy. I did go home this week. Uh, I didn't get in tires rolling down the hill. That was just for fun. I'm just making sure you guys are here. Just making sure we're all here uh, together. Um, that's one of my favorite dad jokes. I've been waiting on that one. Uh, you've been waiting on that one. It's so fun. Uh, We're going to pick up in verse 13 today, right where we left off last week. Um, The text today is directly connected to our text last week. Uh, In a a full setting, I would have taken an hour and a half, and we would have taught all the way through 8 to 15. Uh, But we're kind of halfing it in two different messages. And so uh, this text is directly connected to last week. So the context of what we talked about last week is really, really, really important for today um, if you missed last week, I uh, would really encourage you to go back and listen to that online and so you get that context. Let me remind you a few quick things. Think three quick things before we get to our text this morning. Uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, who is leading the church in, tell me, Ephesus, first century Ephesus, false teaching, creating huge issues in the church, uh, cultural strongholds of a pagan polytheism, the worship of many gods. Um, people, knew the newest converts there, uh, needed freedom from these cultural, pagan, polytheistic strongholds. Helping them get free from that was, was, was a real, real issue for Timothy and that church, especially helping them understand freedom from this um, pagan cult of Artemis, who is the goddess of fertility. 
uh, which permeated every area of life there. So, first thing, the church in Ephesus was in terminal crisis. Paul is trying to create order to save this church. Um, And so what he says in these verses, verses 8 to 12, uh, to men and women is countercultural for both of them. So we spent some time talking about that last week. Um, Men and women were to learn not clamoring for opportunities to teach and lead, but were to learn in quietness. He uses the word, the Greek word for quiet in verse 2 of men and women, and he uses it for uh, women in verses 11 and 12, which was really an empowering way to speak about women because he's empowering them just the way Jesus did to be disciples, to learn and to be discipled in the way of Jesus. We spent a lot of time uh, on this uh, last week. Um, So countercultural for men and women. Thirdly, Uh, There certainly, we read verse 11 and 12, and I'll read those two verses as we come into our text, certainly were um, some teaching and authority restrictions that Paul placed on women in this context, in this church, in this city, in the first century, that he did not place on women in other contexts throughout the New Testament scriptures. And we spent a lot of time unpacking that last week. So again, just encouraging you to take a listen to that. What I want to bring up is a quote Uh, that we looked at last week by um, uh, a scholar, a teacher at Wheaton College, Gilbert Bilzekian, wrote a book called Beyond Sex Rails. And here's kind of how he lands on these verses 8 to 12. And my conviction is agreement uh, with him about this. And he says on verses 8 to 12, given Paul's record of female role issues, this prohibition seems oddly discordant with the rest of his teaching the restrictions Paul laid down in, his, in, this first, in this epistle were temporary measures of exception designed to save this church from, literally, from disintegration. So that's where he landed. Uh, I said, our conviction as a leadership team, that's where we land. Um, and I invited the church to just consider uh, where I was last week. And then if, if we're wrestling through things, let's just have coffee. And uh, I asked for no emails, and you, you honored that. It was awesome. That's awesome. Really appreciate that. Um, so as we get into verse uh, 13 today, um, to help Timothy understand what he's saying, Paul will take him back to the Garden of Eden. So he just made these statements in 11 and 12. I, um, women are to learn in a quietness and submission. I do not permit a woman to have authority. Verse 12. And then the next The next verse, he's like, let's go back to Eden for a moment. Let me talk to you about the Garden of Eden. So before we read our passage, uh, let's get some context from Eden because that's where Paul takes Timothy. So Bible trivia time. Let's have some fun. Are y'all with me right now? Feel free to shout these out. Uh, Let's go Bible trivia. Get some context before before we read the verses. Who did God create First, in terms of mankind, who did he create first? Adam. Okay, good job. How did God create Eve? From his ribs. You guys are scholars. From his rib, not from his head that she might be over him, not from his feet that she might be under him, but from his rib so that she might be 
next to him, partnering with him. She was created to be his Azar, Hebrew word Azar. Helper, in most translations, can also be translated rescuer. Twice of Eve, Azar, 17 times of God, our rescuer. Eve came to the rescue. It's not good for man to be alone. Okay. Adam was created first, and then Eve was created out of his rib. Who did God give specific instruction to regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Adam. He told Adam, if you, you, can, you have anything in the garden, but if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, surely you will die. And that instruction, that responsibility to hold that instruction was, was Adam's. Who took the fruit? Eve. Who ate the fruit? Trick question. Adam and Eve. Who carried the responsibility to lead, protect Adam? Who got deceived? Eve. And they both ate. So God comes looking. And he's not looking for them. He's the, omnip- he's the omnipotent, omniscient God. He knows right where they were. But he comes to the garden and he has a question. And who did he call to first? Adam. And he asked the question, where are you? Adam, what happened? Where are you? And what did Adam do? Well, here's his answer. He said, the woman that you gave me (laughs) did this. And so I ate it. It's her fault. And it's your fault. Defensiveness and blame. Right? It's right there. Genesis 3.12. Look it up. And then, and then he asked Eve what she had done. And this was Eve's response. The serpent deceived me and I ate. She was not defensive. She did not blame. She owned it. She confessed it. I'm going to have a little fun with this. And she stood there, and she took it like a man. (laughs) The passivity of Adam, the defensiveness of Adam, the blame of Adam, and Eve owned it, confessed it. So, Genesis story. Okay, Genesis chapter 3. This whole scene has become known as the fall or the fall of mankind. Uh, And I, I would say that uh, the passivity of Adam is something that men have struggled with ever since. And so, with that Genesis 3 context in mind, let's read 1 Timothy 2, um, 13 to 15. Just three verses today. 
He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Um, when you think about like challenging passages in the New Testament, like, oh, that, that thing in Hebrews 6, man, that's really, that's hard to figure out. That's, or, man, that whole thing with like Paul and 1 Timothy 2 around like childbearing and salvation and what? Like this is, this is a challenging passage of scripture to work through, and I am uh, grateful uh, to have some space um, to work through that challenge uh, with you. We talked about this last week in verses 8 to 12. When we come on a passage of scripture like this, that kind of makes us, like, we have a little puppy named Ruby, and like when you're like saying something to her, you know how the puppies do, they're just kind of like, it's like, that's like this passage, right? It's like, you, it's the puppy dog look. Uh, we want to practice biblical hermeneutics. Hermeneutics means to interpret. And we talked about two things last week that's really important in interpreting passages like this. One is context is king, and the other is scripture interprets scripture. And that's a really important thing to have in our um, repertoire, if you will, and you will. I knew you would. I'm trying today, Noah. I'm trying today. Uh, when we study the word in general, but especially when we come to confusing passages. So what I want to do is uh, I want to look at another place in Scripture that Paul goes back to Eden because Scripture interprets Scripture. And it's Romans chapter 5. Just as sin entered the world through one man, and Paul will be specific in verse 14, he is talking about Adam. Singular, Adam, when he says one man. In verse 14, he names Adam. So just as sin, the, the fall of mankind, just as sin entered the world through Adam and death reigned through sin, so also death was passed on to all men because all sinned. In other words, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. And then he says in verse 15, but the gift... The gift of Jesus, the gift of Messiah, the gift of salvation, the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many? In this context, who is Paul holding responsible for the fall, Adam. Again, by name in verse 14. I didn't read verse 14, but you can look at this later. He did, does he mention Eve at all here? He does not. Adam was formed first, carried the responsibility to protect Eve, and he failed. So with the context, with the passage of Genesis 3, Romans 5 in mind, 
practicing biblical hermeneutics, let's get into our passage. Now, when we read verses 13 to 15, just at first glance, it seems now that Paul is kind of having a bad day with Eve. It's like, what? Did he change his mind? Is he upset with Eve all of a sudden? Because it seems at first read, like, what is going on with this? Uh, great question. My hope uh, in our time together is four points in my own study around this passage that helps me uh, understand what I think Paul is getting at here in this really challenging, confusing passage. Um, we had to get a little seminary-ish last week, and I need to do this again with you. So thinking caps on, um, we need to get a little Greeky here um, as I unpack this. So Paul, and the whole passage of, uh, of verses 8 to 15 is writing in the Greek mode, which is known as the indicative mode. And he is writing in the present tense. Let me help you understand the difference between the indicative mode in Greek literature and the imperative mode in Greek literature. In the indicative mode, it affirms the truth or the actuality of a statement. It's a truth statement. Obviously different than the imperative mode, which is I'm giving you an imperative or I'm giving you a command to do something. So indicative mode is a true statement to believe, and the imperative mode is a command to obey. Are y'all with me right now? In the whole flow of thought between 8, verse 18 and 15, there's only one imperative and it was the imperative that women should learn. There's an imperative women in Greek culture, in Judaism, to be a disciple, to be under a rabbi, uh, was so countercultural. We talked about this last week. And so Paul is giving an imperative to Timothy. Women are disciples, and like men, they learn in quietness as well. That's the only imperative in the whole, in the whole flow of thought. All the rest of it is in the indicative mood. Here's, a, here's an, a, an example of the indicative mood. God is love. Indicative. Jesus loves the world. Indicative. And so in our passage today, what I want us thinking about is what are the indicative things uh, for Paul to teach Timothy about his instruction uh, that he was giving in verse 12 about women learning and quietness. Um, so uh, that's one thing I want you to grab. And then present tense is just this. Just remember, this is a real-time situation. He's writing in the present tense to Timothy because this is a real-time situation specific to this church that was in real crisis. And to help Timothy embrace what he was saying, he offers some indicative truth to believe, to stand on. Okay. Y'all with me? A little seminary, so I know. But you guys can handle it. So here's the first indicative truth I want to point out. This is not imperative. This is indicative mode of Greek grammar. Adam was formed first, and Eve was deceived. Uh, in a commentary that I read uh, this week in my preparation, it says this. For centuries, both before and after Christ... Eve was derided for being the one who plunged the human history into misery. Listen, Paul is not blaming women here. He is stating an indicative truth. 
Adam was formed first, Eve was deceived. That happened in Genesis 3. I believe what Paul is saying here is what Genesis 3 says. Adam was responsible and he failed to lead and protect. And Eve got deceived because of Adam's passivity and God's redemption plan of salvation would now be through her seed, through her childbearing, through the seed of Eve. The moment the fall of mankind happens, God gives a redemption plan through the seed of Eve, through her childbearing, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, So, true statement, Adam formed first, Eve was deceived. And then we get to verse 15, and we read verse 15, and when you read it, it appears to clash with the doctrine of salvation by grace alone in Jesus alone. Because he says, if they continue in faith and love and propriety, right? You read that, it's like, if, like, what's happening here? And so if Paul is saying a conditional kind of salvation by condition through childbearing statement, that would contradict essential Christian doctrine and what he had taught many times over in many other places. Like two in particular, Ephesians chapter 2, also Romans chapter 5. So what do we do when we come to a confusing place of scripture like this? Biblical hermeneutics, context is king, scripture interprets scripture. So let's do that. Where does Paul take Timothy in his mind in these three verses? He takes his mind back to Eden. Okay, we've already talked about that. And so in both 1 Timothy 2 and in Genesis 3, when you follow the flow of thought in Genesis 3 and 1 Timothy 2, after the mention of Eve's deception, there is a reference to childbearing in the chronology of the flow of thought in both of those passages. Paul is following the Genesis order in this indicative true statement, indicative teaching on God's plan to redeem all of mankind. What do do I mean by that? Here is what happens right after the fall of mankind. I'm just going to reference Genesis 3.15 right now. But Genesis 3.15 is known, um, scholars have named this the Proto-Evangelium, which basically just means the first gospel. As soon as the fall of mankind happened, God gives a promise to redeem all of it. And it's Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, following this account. And it would come, the promise of redemption would come through Eve's victorious offspring, childbearing. And so God is speaking in Genesis 3.15. He is speaking to the enemy. So God's speaking to to the enemy, the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity Between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, he, her offspring, he, singular, will crush your head. And you, you will strike, you will strike his heel. It's a foreshadow to what? To the cross of Calvary that Jesus would sacrificially in our place die for us he would pay the wage for us and by his blood we are healed we are 
forgiven and he dies and hallelujah, he rises again and Jesus crushes the head of our enemy. So I look at Genesis 3.15, I look at the, or, um, Genesis 3.15 and I look at 1 Timothy 2, there's a, a reference of salvation by childbearing in both, in both of these uh, contexts. Salvation by the birth of a particular child, Messiah, through Eve is alluded to in both places. Now, here's where it gets confusing for us. Um, and it gets confusing in the tenses of the language. And so I want to I talk with you about that for just a moment. Look at verse 15. If you have your Bible, look, look at verse 15. Now, Paul is looking back to the garden. And when he looks back to the garden, he says, he will, like he's looking forward to the cross. And now that Paul is writing, he is looking back to the cross and all the way back to the garden. And he's referencing the promise of redemption that was given. And he uses this language, uh, the main verb in the verse, will be saved. So he's thinking about Eve the promise of redemption, Genesis 3.15. And then the subject, the subject, and when I read it, I read it out of the NIV. And when I read it, I said, but women, plural. And there's this little A right next to women. And I go down and I look, and I don't have my glasses on, but I can barely see it. And it says, Greek, she. It's a Greek singular pronoun, she. And the NIV and the NLT and the NAS, they all translate it women, which frustrates me because that's not what it says. What it says is, if you have an ESV translation, who has an ESV translation in here? What does it say? What's the pronoun? She. She. Which is what it is in the Greek. So in, with your pen, if you have an NIV, cross it out and write she. Because Paul is not referencing women. He is referencing Eve. And that, that, that's a lot of the confusion in this passage right there. The singular seed... Jesus of Eve, she makes salvation possible for everyone. Paul is confirming to Timothy the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis chapter 3. It is fulfilled. It is fulfilled. Okay, Swain, but what do I do with the they? Because there's this interesting thing because it goes from she to they when it says, if they continue in faith and love and holiness. So hold that for just a second. And let's look at the word that's translated continue. Uh, continue um, perhaps makes it seem like it's conditional, that you got to do the things. Uh, but that Greek word that's translated conditional in my translation can also be translated wait Depend, abide, remain. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 15 
From John 14 to John 16 is the Last Supper discourse of Jesus before he would go to the cross on Friday. And in that discourse, he is speaking to a group of disciples, the 12. They, okay? He's speaking to they, and he uses this language. Same Greek root word that Paul uses when he says, if they continue in faith, love, holiness. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Whoever remains or abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do, tell me, nothing. Again, who is Jesus speaking to in John 15? He is speaking to believers, disciples of Christ who have received the message of Jesus as Messiah, his death, his resurrection, his coming again. All of these qualities, faith, faith in Jesus is a gift. I don't earn faith. God gives me faith as a gift. The love of God. God is love. Like I don't, I don't earn God's love. God gives it to me by a gift of his grace. I can't do anything to be holy before the Holy Father. God gives me righteousness and holiness because Jesus gives that to us. These are qualities. These are realities of the gifts that we have been given by Jesus as adopted sons and daughters in the family of God. These are not things to go do. This is the reality of our faith. Disciples, they abide, they remain, they wait, they continue in all that God has given to us. Amen? It's not a conditional statement. It's a sincere, the people who have sincere faith, they will abide. It's not perfectly. They will wait, they will continue, they will depend upon the name in whom we call Savior. Last point. Paul theologically affirms the mutual interdependence of men and women in his writings. One example of this that I'll give you uh, is 1 Corinthians 11, verses 11 and 12. Scripture interprets Scripture. Let me read this. He says, In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as women came from man, Adam was formed first, right? So also man is born of a woman. But everything comes from God. So although man came first in creation, women comes first in succeeding generations because they give birth to the next generation. We are not independent of one another, we are interdependent as brothers and sisters in the same family. And the truth statement is God is the ultimate source of life for all of us. So in this passage, this confusing passage, this is where I'm landing. Um, I hope this is helpful uh, to you. Uh, I hope it's instructive. I hope it's encouraging. I hope it's giving you things to think about, wrestle with in your own faith, in your own journey. 
Um, next week, we'll get to chapter 3, and we'll see Paul call some, some specific men, not all men, but some specific men up to lead the church in the crisis, uh, not being passive like Adam, but stepping up to protect, uh, leading with uh, love and honor and integrity. So that'll be next week in chapter 3. But in closing this section out, and we've I think three weeks we've been in chapter two, four weeks, I'm not sure. Um, let, me, let me close this out this way. I want us to pull back from the woods um, some of the detail that we've been talking about, especially last week and this week, to pull back from some of that detail and look at the big picture of what Paul is saying. I don't want us to concentrate so narrowly on the specifics of gospel advancement in first century Ephesus that we lose the significance of the passage as a whole. There are important things to consider, and I think we've taken time to consider those things the last two weeks, but where I want to kind of close this section is what, what is the main message here? Gospel mission is where Paul focuses his attention squarely in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Gospel mission. Here's what he, just a reminder of a verse in chapter 1. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners... Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. In other words, if any of all y'all think that you are too far gone, that your sin has more power than the grace of God, think again. I am the worst of sinners, and God's mercy came to me. So I am the example to all y'all that any person, anytime, anywhere can call the name of Jesus, and you will be welcomed, and you will be honored, and you will be forgiven, and you'll be given a hope that's eternal, and you will be discipled in the way of Jesus. That's chapter 1. And then chapter 2 begins with this unifying call for all, for, for the people of God to pray for everyone. That's how chapter 2 begins. And if you remember how chapter 1 ended, he calls out these two brothers who were giving false teaching and they were teaching um, uh, heresy. And Paul is wanting to protect the sheep in the house of God, and he calls him out by name, and he goes, I have handed over Alexander, and I've handed over Hymenaeus to Satan to be sifted so that they might not blaspheme. That's intense. That is intense. But then he gets right into chapter 2, the very next flow of thought, and when he's writing this letter, there are no chapters, by the way, so it's just, it's all the same flow, and then he tells the church, pray for everyone, including Alexander and Hymenaeus, that they might come to Jesus. Here's what it says in verse 4. God wants all people, all people.
people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Amen? Paul simply wants to get people, all people, to Jesus. And we'll let the ministry of Jesus have the power. Like, I, don't, I don't have power to convert anyone. I have a testimony. I believe. I can share. And I just want to get people to Jesus and trust Jesus to do the work of Jesus. And I think that's what Paul is getting at. The priority is always the mission, sharing the message of Jesus and his saving grace. And so I believe that we should be wise and discerning not to make secondary or tertiary things primary things. Let's, let's do work, let's study, let's, let's have conversation, but we would be wise and discerning not to make secondary doctrinal issues, tertiary issues, and make them the center and divide over it when the heart of God is not for his people to be divided, but to be unified in Jesus. Come on, church. Y'all with me? Wisdom is this. Keep the main thing, the main thing. Keep the main thing, tell me, the main thing. That's, that's my heart in this teaching today. When I think about that phrase, keep the main thing, the main thing, the passage of scripture that for me comes up in my mind is uh, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, for I delivered to you as of first importance, don't make tertiary, secondary things, primary things, keep the main thing, the main thing. Here's the first important reality. It's what I have also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Thanks be to God. Um, after preaching, worship team, you guys can come back. After preaching two memorial services uh, this week, it's been a, it's been a challenging week. Um, that resonates with me. Keep the main thing the main thing. That resonates with me. And I pray it resonates with you. All, all our hope, all our hope is in you, Lord. We read, when our children were little, we used to read um, the Jesus Storybook Bible to them. And we give that as a gift to um, families when they have a new baby, and it's a gift that we love to give. Um, and there's a statement in the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I think of the words of Jesus, let the children come, don't hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to these. And if you don't have faith, even as a child, right? And it's this line, Jesus makes all the sad things come untrue. He is mending God's broken world. I got some sad things. You got some sad things? You got some sad things? I got some sad things. I'll be a little bit more vulnerable. Um, I got some angry things. I got some angry things. You got angry things? Yeah, I do too. 
Jesus makes all the sad things and all the angry things come untrue. He is mending God's broken world. And in the end, in the end, all will be made well. You are who he says you are. And he is who he says he is. All will be made well because of our redemption in Jesus. Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. Let's get people to Jesus. And let's stay with Jesus. Amen. If you abide in me, if you depend on me, if you wait upon me, if you continue with me, I continue, I abide on you, for apart from me you can do nothing. So Lord, as we as we sing, as we worship, Lord, we want to abide, we want to trust, we want to be rooted in our faith, we want to be rooted in your love for us, we want to be rooted with the declaration that because of Jesus we are righteous and that you are making us holy. You're setting us apart. In Jesus' name, amen.